So welcome to the FTSQ podcast series, Celebrating Nonconformists. Today we're interviewing one of my favourite people in the entire world, Katie Howell from Immediate Futures. Welcome, Katie. Hiya. I'm so excited to have you on today. And pre-warning to everybody, both of us, we're like troopers, so this is going to be hilarious. Um, so so the first uh, thing, before we jump into talking about you specifically, and I know you've got some really interesting stories to tell, it'd be really good to get your thoughts on what you consider a non-conformist to be. Hmm. Do you know, weirdly, and I'm probably in the wrong place if I'm going to say this, I don't think I am a non-conformist. They are. That throws Spanner in the works, didn't it? Ah, oh, I love that already. Brilliant. <laughs> okay, let me say, let me say there was a difference between compliance and conformists. So people who are compliant kind of follow the rules and a conformist follows the social sort of norms, the unspoken rules. But the reality is, you see, I follow a lot of norms. So, for instance, as I was discussing in the car on my way to work this morning with my daughter, she said to me, yeah, but you follow a lot of social norms. You wear clothes, for instance, which is a <laughs> I thought, yes, I do. Uh, and the reality <laughs> is that, yeah, you know what? Most of us are actually conformists. We follow the normal way of working. We we say thank you. If you're a British, we say sorry a lot. We We do all the normal things. I want to clarify nonconformist by the fact that certainly from my perspective, it fits around particular things where I don't always sit inside the norm. So it's, it's nonconformist in, uh, for topics, for instance, or specific areas where I might buck the trend. But for the vast majority of things, I like the kind of music that's popular that most people like I, I read the books that everybody else reads you know it's I am not I'm quite conformist in many of my tastes I think is a better way of putting it and and so I dislike labels always have done so I'm not I'm not a non-conformist <laughs> <laughs> no I absolutely love it it's quite interesting because some some people will see themselves completely as a non-conformist and I'll be looking at them going yeah you're really not and then other times I will like you for instance I always find you particularly yeah. inspiring because you kind of just live your life the way you want to to live it and and everything and I guess for me uh, this is what's really interesting is like non-conformity means different things to different people and for me I look at you and I categorically put you in the non-conformist because you're always doing interesting things you don't always stick to what I think the the, the norms are and in, in the industry that you work in and all those kinds of things I think you do back quite a lot of trends a lot of the time <laughs> but I agree with you it's, it's yeah it's an interesting thing the labels thing so yeah yeah. I have hated labels all my life. People have stuck labels on me since I was born. Yeah, I have been daughter, brown person. I have been wife, mother, boss, junior. I hate labels. <laughs> Bloody hate them. They're restrictive, so I refuse your label of <laughs> That in itself is non I love it. I love it. It's brilliant. <laughs> um, so, so tell us a bit about yourself, your sort of things about you and your life and, and your environment and how you grew up. And I just want to hear your story and the significant milestones you've had and moments within your journey. So I've been thinking a lot about this since you, you sent me this question, actually, Lena, because 
I was thinking, how is this valuable to someone else? And again, just to be really bloody awkward, like most people, I'm a sum of my parts. So I was growing up as a youngster, you know, sort of preteen. I stood on the outside and I stood on the outside, not because of me, but because of the color of my skin. And for those of you who've not met me, I am a woman of color. Um, Growing up in the 70s, my parents are eccentric smart, intelligent people. I can't put it any other way. We did not grow up in a community. My mum and dad are from India and came over here to the UK and they lived their lives in the way that they saw fit, uh, which often meant quite often being quite outside what we a typical or normal way of, of behaviour for an immigrant family. And so I grew up in a I went to school in a school where there were no other brown faces apart from my sister for many a year. And so I had exclusion imposed upon me in the early 70s where language, I mean, I would say this, but this will be recorded, but the language that was used was what we would consider awfully inappropriate in terms of describing who I was. And so I learned to be very self-sufficient for the early part of my life. I had one or two friends, but I was never in with the in crowd. It was made clear to me as I headed towards my teens that no boys my age wanted to go out with someone like me because I was brown and I might smell of curry. I could tell you worse stories than that, but I wouldn't want to offend anybody. But But here's the thing. There are two ways you take this, isn't it? You either, I think I had an epiphany as I hit my teens, uh, and I think there are two ways that you take this. One is that you kowtow to it. You you try and inveigle yourself in with the right people to do the right things so that you're accepted or kind of you just go your own way. And I think this is where a part of what you and I talk about is I think, Lena, you, people like you and I were born this way. We were born with a streak of self-confidence. I don't know what you call it. Self-awareness. Bold. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it is ball. It is, but it's also quite judicious. Can I say judicious balls? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Go on, make it up. <laughs> My point is, we don't don't do things for the hell of it. We do things because we're driven by passion. So when I when I left school and went to uni, uni I absolutely adored. I'll, I'll talk about where the epiphany came from me, but uni I absolutely adored because suddenly I was in with the in crowd and in with the out crowd and every shade in between because older people, and now I, we'd hit the 80s and wasn't quite so polarised around race. It was still there, but it wasn't so polarised. But I absolutely embraced it all. I loved university and I studied plant sciences and genetics and I had a ball, got drunk quite a lot, took loads of things I shouldn't have taken <laughs> and had an absolutely fantastic time. And then I stepped out and went into sales, the most conformist world that you can imagine, where everything is done and everybody has to be a particular way. Loved it, every moment of it. And then went into advertising, which is just, you know, a white male world. And I didn't fit at all. Not in one tiny bit did I fit. I was just the wrong shape for everything. And it didn't help at that point which is that I started to have children, which was a bit of a nuisance in the ad world. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I don't fit now because I'm too old. You know, I'm over 50. Um, The ad world doesn't really appreciate me in terms of the network agencies. But I think you you mentioned some things. There's some milestones that are quite interesting. I talk about my uni years being probably the the most fundamental part. And that, that 
sits hand in hand with my family time. My parents talked business over the dinner table. They asked us questions. They asked us what we thought. I, I grew up knowing that my opinion counted. And my mother, I call my mother the kind of the shy revolutionary because she doesn't shout about how rebellious she really is, but she is rebellious. And she changed the world. She changed her world and she changed my world and she changed my sister's world dramatically. And still to this day, she's like that. She questions everything and says, is there a better way of doing this? Is there an alternative way of doing this? And you know what? I've kind of got that. And by the time I went to university, I went to university, you have to remember, we had Thatcher, we had the miners' strike, Channel 4 launched, we had Band-Aid, we had the first ever 24-hour TV with MTV. The world was changing, but there was lots of anger as well. We had apartheid during the 80s. Yeah, I remember that in New Zealand quite significantly, the uh, South African stuff that was going on. And there was, for us, so I'm Gen X, the Gen X, I think, grew up when the world was just tipping upside down and we felt we could change anything and that suited me. So together came this, you know, Katie head of like, what what could I do differently and how can I do, why do I have to accept that this is always the way things have been done? Why can't I change it? A lot of fight, a lot of (laughs) anti-establishment and... And I loved, so I loved university because it allowed me to explore all of these elements and realise that I could change things. And I think that was probably the biggest driver for me was wanting to change the world. Or is that every 20-year-old? <laughs> probably. But the thing is, the thing that I think about you, though, Katie, is it didn't stop. It's still in you, which I think is a difference. Yeah, yes. I'm a fighter. I have uh, my father's courage and my mother's savviness without to without without you know my dad was very courageous they just did their own thing their way and I thought well you know so can I and, and I think that made a a massive difference and, and then I was there's bravery when it comes to being to finding something new if we talk about non-conformism about as about trying to make your a be comfortable with who you are which is the biggest priority and secondly how you can make a difference to the world around you, then frankly, it's bravery you need more than anything else. Bravery that what you might do would fail. And I think I think I have bravery or idiocity. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe a bit of, you know, Darwin impact, but I, you know, I've survived it. I tend to go, well, what have I got to lose? What have I what have I got to lose if I try this? So being in the advertising world, when I stepped out of there to set up immediate future. You know, I, I was paying the mortgage alongside my hubby. My hubby was giving up work to look after our two small children so I could set up immediate future. That meant I was taking all sorts of risks with everything. But I still did it because I couldn't not do it. Following that path, I think, is really important. I think what's quite interesting, and weirdly enough, as you were talking about your parents, I, I, I think I know why you and I are quite kindred spirits. Your parents sound very similar to mine. They always gave us permission to have our own thoughts and and the minds. And I think you and I are quite lucky. I think there's a lot of people that I've come across that I guess label as nonconformists that didn't have that support. And I think what's interesting is the difference in their journeys to journeys like you and I have had. Yes, we've had differences. I was the white girl with brown brothers, you know, 
uh, in my yeah. family. And weirdly enough, that still come, there's still racism that ca- comes in with that, weirdly. And not in a ni- horrible way, but sort of, you know, they're not your brothers kind of thing. So I, I kind of get, I, I, I get that a lot. Do you think how you, you know, how you deal with being different throughout your life? Obviously, there were elements that were easy and there were elements that are hard. How, what did you do to deal with those things as you went through life? Oh, that's a bloody big question, isn't it? Um, <laughs> when, I was, when I hit my teens, really early teens, you know that moment of self-actualization where you begin to become quite aware of who you are? I kind of maybe not officially made a decision, but, but I think mentally ran down this path that said, okay, so I am different. I am not the same as everybody else, and I'm never going to be the same as everybody else. I can't, I can't you know unless by some miracle I turned white and blonde and weighed three stone, it, I was never going to fit. Please don't. We love you just the way you are. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I embraced it. I, I, I'm really young, really young I embraced it. And then what I did, I hate injustice. So I then fought everybody who said otherwise. Anybody who said I couldn't do anything, I, I fought them. And I think, so when you say how do I deal how do I deal with tough situations? I, I'm not a big sulker and I don't, I'm not a big chess beater. So I tend to look at things with two minds. The first is I face the fear. I, t- I say to, I follow my thought, right, what is the worst that's going to happen? And then at that point where you really, truly, honestly face it, what the worst, then you ask yourself, what would you do about it then? How will you survive that? And the other part of it is that I won't let people get away with it. So I I, I don't want to sit quietly. I want to change things, not just for me, but for other people. So I tend to fight. Uh, And that, I'll give you an example of this. When I I was with a company that, that ran exhibitions, I was told by a senior board member that I couldn't write. I was actually told this in quite an aggressive way where, the document I'd written was thrown on the on the table and there was quite a lot of swearing and desk kicking and I was told I was useless and no good. Wow. Uh, I've never tolerated much of this, but, but I have to conform because I need a job and, you know, I'm, I had one small baby at that time. There was nothing much more I could do about that. However, what I did instead was I bought every bloody book I could find on how to write. I brushed up my grammar because I was writing like a scientist because that's what I'd done. I learned how to write. I read, there weren't many blogs back then, but I read everything I could. My mother worked in PR and marketing communications. I would send her articles. I basically wrote virtually every single day I wrote something. And a year later, I could write. And still to this day, I can write. That, 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 that's what I am. I am that person that will not be defeated. I won't be put down, and that's the fight I'm talking about, not necessarily aggression. I mean, the courage to go, okay, might have been told, told nastily, but he's got a point, I can't write. I need to write. I need to be better than this. And I think that's probably my biggest driver, is I'm never going to, be, I'm never going to let anyone put me in a place where they tell me I can't do something. That takes bravery, doesn't it? Yes, I think there's quite a rebellious streak in me. <laughs> Sounds like you definitely inherited that from your from your parents. <laughs> you mentioned Ruby Swery. There is a lot of fuck you in me. You know, <laughs> um, you know, fuck you. I'll show you. 
uh, and I probably have lived most of my life like that, which is uh, I might not react straight away, but I'll change things and I'll do it and I'll make a success out of this or I'll change it and make a success out of myself. And I think I'm quite driven by that fire. Yeah, I think the fire in your belly, I think, is something that often I see dampened down in some people. You know, they've got teachers and bosses and things that kind of get scared by the fact that this person's coming through and they're different. And I think it does it does take quite a lot of energy sometimes to allow that flame to keep burning because you've got people constantly trying to throw, throw water at you to try and make you the same as everybody else. But um, one of the things I was going to ask about is, you know, you talked there about there was a, from a very early age, you sort of decided that, actually it didn't matter. Was was there any moment that made you decide to turn your difference into a place of power? Because I look at you and I think the th- all the things that make you different, for me, are the things that look at you and go, Katie's who I want to be when I don't grow up. You know, you're, I, I hold you up in high esteem and I always look at you and go, yeah, that's what I want to be like. You know, so was there any moment? No, because no? I'm going to take the question again. <laughs> <laughs> Never interview a what if and why person, which is me. Um, okay, I never sought power. How's about, how about that? Not interested, couldn't care less. Interesting. I only want to change things. I only want to be better. I'm not attracted to power or money or things. I'm interested because I'm interested because I'm – crazy obsessed on picking things when i was a kid i took a, a betamax vcr because everything went vhs i took it apart i have wanted to unpick the world a bit work out how it works and then put it back together better and and that drives me way more way more than power i've got to power because power helps in that journey so having influence probably a better word yeah probably a much better word actually yeah having influence like being on the radio, being on TV, writing books, people listening to, you know, reading my articles, listening to this podcast, is about helping people change alongside me. And so you can embrace these things. You don't have to be wildly different. It's about you, not them. It's not, it's not about changing the things around you. It's about changing you and the way you look at it. And if you start from that perspective, it's actually easier is power the driver? No, power is just the facilitator, and influence is the facilitator. The driver that sits behind it is a is a passionate need to want to make things better, which is a pretty amazing, powerful driver in itself, isn't it? It's a it's probably to your point. It's more about influence and and having a powerful approach to the world rather than uh, seeking power. Um, yeah. yeah, no, interesting. <laughs> In marketing, so I love marketing. I love it. It's, I, I'm so passionate about it because it so interests me that we can change behaviours. We have the power, there's power in that, if, to change the way people behave. We can, we can make them get, you know, uh, to stop using plastic straws. We can encourage them to purchase more stuff. We can encourage them to purchase less stuff. We can do all sorts. It's such an amazing interesting subject but it requires us to ask why are people doing that why do people behave in this way what if we put this amongst the mix 
what if we change that? And that bit is the most interesting because that's when you find the new. When you ask why and what if, that's when you find the new, the innovative. That's when you uncover a new way of doing things. And that's how I found social media 15 years ago because I asked the right questions. I think social media is a really interesting place to sort of explore those things about yourself as as well. I know I certainly, I feel like I kind of came into my own um, when the world of social media came along because all my life I'd kind of felt different, didn't, you know, felt like a square peg in a, in a round hole. And it was through social and through work as well, but probably way more through social that I started to notice there were a lot of other people like me that didn't quite fit the mould that everybody was expecting. Were there ever any people that you noticed out there and people that you've come across, those square pegs and round holes that that you've sort of thought they're really interesting, you know, maybe they're more aligned to me and and as such, how are they coping with being different? Oh, I found this question the hardest because weirdly I don't think I've ever noticed. I I kind of take people as I take people. I, I listen quite a lot to what people say and the way they behave and what, what they react to. And I'm not sure I ever bucket them up into your normal and your not, you know, your conformist or not conformist. And so I really struggled with this. I think I think when I look at the people around me who I probably kind of surround myself with slightly more because I'm I'm not that choosy. Does that sound terrible? No, not at all. <laughs> I, I kind of really just am interested in people. I find them I find them fascinating. Um, I find their stories fascinating. But if I was to pick some of the people that are closer to me and say, yeah, I, I think the bit that I find really interesting is how people draw strength. And as you rightly said, a lot of people don't have natural coping mechanisms for being a bit outside. Um, and the ones that, as they grow, find a better way of dealing with it, tend to surround themselves with, like-minded people um, or have come from roots and backgrounds where they've got support but in the main I have not seen I don't look for it so I don't spot it I'm I'm really not being very helpful with any of your questions no you're being you're being honest it's a story there's no right or wrong answers (laughs) but it's a curious question isn't it because I just take people at face value sometimes I don't even notice whether they're male or female or any form of BAME, you know, who cares? I don't care. I'm not interested in that bit. I'm interested in what you're doing. I'm interested in what you're thinking and I'm interested in your opinions and I don't really give much of a shit about anything else. I don't care if you've got loads of mates or no mates, you know, it doesn't make any difference to me. Which I think is just delightful. It's a, it's an interesting thing. I mean, obviously, for obvious reasons, having set up this business specifically to sort of help nonconformists, I notice them everywhere. But for me, it's because I actually notice a lot of the time, not all of them, and I think people like you and me, I think you're right in the fact that there's a lot of social people that can cope. You and I are fighters, so we're quite happy happy to stand up and go well fuck that shit you know not dealing with that or that's crap whatever but I've taken a step back from being that person and expecting everybody else to be there and actually have started to notice the pain of the quieter non-conformist type square pegs and round holes and that's what I notice I notice people that aren't being heard which makes me sad do you not think here's my thought or maybe it's because I'm you know as I mentioned you know over 50 and I think to a certain extent you get a bit chilled 
I have always loved people. I fall in love very easily with people. I love them. And it's one of the things that I enjoy most is just being kind to people. I know that sounds flipping. That sounds awful. No, it doesn't. It sounds <laughs> wonderful. And it's why I think you're amazing. <laughs> hippie woman who's freaking getting out her beads and... <laughs> It's just caring about people enough to notice when someone's unhappy or just even when they're happy, just saying you're doing great or fabulous, but not insincerely. It's not, I don't, I, I don't seem to think of it like that. It's easy. It's really easy to be kind. It's actually much easier than you think it is. It just requires yeah. you to, to remember that you're talking to another bloody human being. And yet, and yet so many people aren't thinking about anybody else. No, at the moment we, we lack a bit of empathy in the world. Yes, we do, which makes makes me very sad because I, I'm by nature quite an empathetic person, probably to my own detriment sometimes. No, never, but, um, never. And I think people, <laughs> not only never, but we just have to be more empathetic and more kind. That's the answer. The answer is not to complain, but the answer is to be more loving. And uh, and for me, that's oh god, I sound like bloody. No- I, did, I was born in the sixties. Okay, <laughs> I love the fact that you're like this. <laughs> <laughs> bloody hippie! I've turned into a hippie. I was a punk rocker, and I've turned into a hippie. As as a person that's lived a few decades now, there must have been. I was going to ask you a question about which nonconformists you admire and why, but. Forget about the non-conformist bit for a minute and just go, which people have you admired and why? Like, who inspires That's you? That's perfect. So they are people that change the world. So for me, I have I read The Colour Purple by Mayor Angelou when I was very young and it changed things for me. I, I think it made me think in a different way because when I was younger, when I was in my late teens, there, there weren't many books which, which kind of described other histories in that way and then I began to read more of May's stuff and for me it was it was it was stuff that changed thinking not necessarily shouted and made change the other person which I worried about saying but I have to say as a child who, who who spent her 20s in the 80s it has to be Madonna because she changed everybody's oh, yeah. perception of women and how we talk about sex and you know in this modern day 20 years on I can talk vaginas and vulvas with my and family perfectly well and nobody is terrified of the idea that we can talk about our bodily functions in the way that we want to and I feel that there is a streak of Madonna running through feminism that changed things in the way that Me Too is changing things for the generation we now have and then the others are going to be collectives because you know me I have to be different so the Green and Common women those that marched for CND and Channel 4 Channel 4, that, and I cannot remember the name of the guy who wrote My Beautiful Laundrette, which was so impactful. I mean, it was the first time in my life, certainly, where there was an openness about gay relationships and in a film that was so incredibly moving, mixed in with racism and, you know, uh, mixed cultures. And that was published by, I don't know if you know, it was produced by Channel 4 Films. And Channel 4 was born in the 80s and really came along and changed a lot of cultural perceptions, which we now take as the norm. So if I was to say it was definitely not the 90s when we all got, you know, made money and drank champagne, apparently. Some of us didn't. But <laughs> Very ebb feb. Definitely the 80s. I, I spoke to the lawyer who was representing Nelson Mandela and then a year later uh, apartheid fell apart and he was released and it was just, I feel like I was so lucky 
to be part of a world that was changing constantly. So I have so many icons and so many people who made a difference. Now, we didn't improve things greatly because 20 years, 30 years since, we kind of look at the world and think, oh, God, we bugger that up. But we're not the same as we were. And what we were prior to the 80s was pretty grim. And I don't think people remember how bloody awful it was, so how secular it was and how how racist and prejudiced we were as a society and how much that has changed since. And yet in some ways it hasn't with the rise of what's happening, you know, the UK at the moment, there's there's been a lot of racist and xenophobia coming out, which shocked me after landing here in, in 2003 and feeling like it was, look, it was obviously there, but it, it obviously had changed quite quite a bit. But I'm shocked at how much came out during the whole referendum and Brexit and all the rest of it. It's quite scary that it's still there. It is. I would say that now we have counter voices. True. In the 70s, there were no – in fact, it was on bloody TV with Alf Garner. It was normal yeah. to be racist. Now it's not normal. And, and whilst there are people who still are racist, sexist, prejudiced of all types – they are actually, they might be loud voices, but they aren't everyone. And that is different. That is different. And we can change things again. And the next generation, whatever we call them, the youngsters coming up, whatever badge and label we want to stick on them, but the youngsters coming up are brave and smart and clever. And they're not going to tolerate this. The beauty of the world is it keeps changing. It will change. Yeah. Yeah, it's, a, it's exciting times that we're living in. There's so much happening i mean the mere fact that you can you get somebody like the other day david attenborough going on stage at glastonbury he's 93 that man is so influential amazing you know and did you see the results only one tent was left behind which is how fab is that at glastonbury only one tent was left behind that's amazing so different to what it has been in the past i know yeah, so different mm. So the next question I wanted to ask you then was was going more back to immediate futures and, and your business. I'd known you for years, but it, we didn't actually meet up until a couple of years ago. And the story that you, you sort of started telling me about how you got it up and running and, and getting it going really fascinates me because you were one of the first ones in the social media scene to, to have an agency that really knew what it was doing and all the rest of it. How, tell me that story. How did you, in more detail, get that up and going? What did that look like? Because that story I find quite fascinating. And, and how are you running it today? Oh, God, that's big questions. <laughs> um, so I was working at DVB, lucky enough to work with some really smart people um, around me. But I was doing some work within, weirdly, in an interactive TV division and began to realise that message boards and Google Groups, which nobody seems to remember at all, message board, Google Groups, MySpace and blogs were a fabulous means to communicate. I, I have to say I don't think much more of it than that. And I began experimenting with what we call back then blogger relations, which you may, in today's modern world, I guess it was influencer relations and building things up on MySpace and working with some of the DDB clients in the background to see what I could achieve really I you know and I had the freedom then in in the in the division I was working in to do that and then I jumped ship and set up immediate future but only as a freelance it was given a company name for tax reasons so I could limit the liability on it basically and um, 
So with small babies, my hubby, bless him, gave up work to look after the kids. And I went freelance, effectively, to sell this idea. And I worked round the clock. And I had 20 clients in two years, including clients like EMI, who were paying me at the time, this is 16, 17 years ago, were paying me four grand a month. So I was effectively an agency, but one person. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we've all done that. (laughs) Working till midnight, three o'clock in the morning and not having holidays. And I got really, really exhausted. And my mother said to me, you really need to set up, you need to help or you need to cut back on this because you haven't got any time to spend any of the money you're earning. So I got someone to help me with the admin and the invoicing, and then I got an account manager on board, and then we began to grow. And so we were about three people. I I always say to people, I'm the accidental agency owner because I hadn't really given it a huge amount of thought. (laughs) I just stepped into it and went, okay, I'll give this a try. (laughs) More for me. And then then we'd done a project with an agency called Tonic at the time, with Sony Electronics and after the project had finished it was you know doing a lot of blogger related getting bloggers to the shoots of their TV ad campaigns because that's where social was uh, Facebook was not even in the picture at this point because we launched officially as an agency in 2004 so where in other words when it wasn't just me <laughs> okay so so in 2004 which is exactly the same year as Facebook kind of came into existence and it really didn't it didn't stretch much further outside of the, the campuses. So we used a bit of Twitter because it was a cheap way to use SMS messaging. And that was it. That was the only value it had at the time. And so Sony called me in and said, we want you to, you know, we're going to switch all our marketing and PR budget to this new blogging stuff. <laughs> it was called digital PR because nobody knew what else to call it at the time. And we're going to give it all to you. And I said, okay, so how much is it? And let's put it this way, it was a six-figure sum. My client, who I got very close to, kind of said it was the only time she'd ever see me go silent for a long time, my reaction. I went, but there were only three of us. (laughs) I was like, I can't do this work. I cannot do this work. And bless her, she was fantastic because what she did was help us grow the agency. And it became, you know, it was a wonderful experience because as we grew, Facebook grew and then we, and Twitter grew and, and, and the whole, we grew up with Sony Electronics Europe, experimenting and testing and trialing all sorts of things. And we had other clients, but Sony was our biggest client until 2012. Oh, at which point it all fell apart the six <laughs> because the second year is Sony took all their work away and went global and we lost about 60-70% of our business which was a very steep learning curve for me which is I thought all agencies just work like magic never occurred to me I've never really taken on much advice stupidly because we were successful so why would I it never occurred to me we weren't doing things right so I hauled us back out changed direction away from the PRE end of things which we'd sort of gotten into because I'm not a PR I'm a marketeer so we began to do more strategy and we kind of hung in there for a couple of years and then flew again I think it was about 2010 (laughs) 2013 and the years all muddle up for me and social's got so amazingly sophisticated and it has so many moving parts and it's always changing. It satisfies my need for new and shiny. But fundamentally, at the bottom of social media that sits at the bottom of this agency is people's behaviours. And it fascinates me. We do all these reports, yeah, for instance, 
I mean, you've seen some of them, Lena. We've just done one on barbecues. Do you know, people talk mostly when they talk about barbecues, not about the meat they're cooking and the beer they're drinking. They do talk about those things, but they're, they're not obsessive about them. They talk about the family. They talk about togetherness. So, you know, if you're selling mayonnaise or you're selling, you know, prime cuts of meat or you're selling vegan burgers, the, the bit that matters is not the food. The bit that matters is people coming together. And I love it. I love say, seeing it, proving it, evidencing it with data and then going back and rewriting their marketing programs for social. I just, I'm fascinated by it. And that's how this agency works. It works by looking at what, how we can change behaviours. And in the meantime, we surf the wave of changing algorithms, formats, the fact that Facebook turns on a pin every five minutes. Uh, and I love it, but, but it's about being serious. And ser social is a serious business. Not, it's not an always on. So our mantra, Lena, as you know, is breaking the social boring because there is so much shit, crap, pedestrian bollocks out there on social media. There is so many checkbox, tick box marketing, which is we've got our Facebook page tick. We've got our Twitter page tick. And what's on there is garbage. And it's just adding to the endless stream of noise. I feel really passionate about this because this is that's not marketing. That's not branding. That's not sales. It is ineffectual waste of time and you're better off going out, standing outside your front door and shaking hands with the first hundred people you meet because actually that's that, that would serve you better than the, the, half the twaddle that's out there. So I'm quite aggressively taking a stance that if you're going to do social, you, it needs to have business impact. Which is really Otherwise, interesting how doing. many brands still aren't doing that after how many years? And you must have seen such a big... You know, you were there from the outset. You were there when it was in its infancy. And, you know, as you said, you were using Twitter basically as SMS messaging. You know, the changes that have happened in the industry since then, and yet there's still brands that are effectively just broadcasting out shit. How is that happening? Uh, because social is not a priority. I, I get that. It's not a priority. But, but also not doing a job well is a bit embarrassing for many brands, in my view. There is a lack of bravery. I mean, maybe it's the current climate at the moment. There's a fear to step outside of the norms. Nobody wants to be brave and do something different. And when we started Immediate Future, we couldn't have done it without the brave clients that came and joined us that believed that MySpace would work, that didn't believe that, you know, writing blogs would actually deliver results. And we... Uh, we are very choosy about our clients and the clients that we have on board are those that want to make a difference. We have the most amazing set of brands working with us and they are prepared to take a chance to try something new. And that, that's, fa that's fantastic. But for a lot of companies, social is it's an unhappy channel that they have to use. It's kind of, oh, we have to have a Twitter profile don't know what to do with it so we'll get a junior to just pump stuff out on it when it has so much potential yeah. to be more than that is and that shame. is a shame it's really interesting something you talked about it sparked something in my mind actually um as as business owners whether you're a non-conformist or not the the point that you made about something quite significant happened with losing Sony and you had to change direction and I think when a business is is around for a really long time that potentially has to happen quite a few times. How do you sort of deal with that, you know, emotionally, strategically? 
at which point do you decide, right, it's time, oh, I'm using a, a very wanky phrase, but, you know, they use the word pivot, you know, at, at which, when do you decide that? When is you go enough's enough? And how do you do it? Oh, it's a really, this is a good question. I'm going to be really honest with you. I would say right. badly. And usually when I've hit the bottom and then the fight comes out, I would say the biggest challenge for me running a business has been mental strength. Yeah, I think most of us feel that. Oh, it's just, it, it's, it's, it's extraordinarily lonely. People say that, but it, nobody can understand the pressure and responsibility that you often face. And it isn't just, you know, I'm going to lose this company and I'm going to lose face. It's I'm going to let the people down that work for me. I'm going to let my family down. I'm not going to be the person they think I'm so entangled with who I am and the business. It's really hard. And I'd say certainly a couple of times during the last 15 years, I have hit the bottom really badly. Um, And it has taken me days and if not weeks to recover and I've had to face that fear I've had to face it and sometimes I can do it quite quickly and sometimes I can't once I've faced it and it stops being kind of mad pointless panic which is where you start once you face it once you go okay look the worst that's going to happen is we're going to go bust or this client's going to get upset or we're going to get sued whatever the old thing is right whatever your Fear is once that once you face that and say I'm going to take this one step at a time. This is what I'm going to do. You're actually able to say right, okay. So how might I solve this problem? And you're able to look at solutions, and that solution then often is a pivot. And pivots are hard because often they mean changing everything within the agency, but they're very satisfying because you're doing something to move you into a positive direction. So actually, they help with that level of anxiety that you have it's worse I think to sit there watching everything going to rack and ruin (laughs) doing nothing and just you know waiting for something to happen I'd rather just go and act on it and do something but I think all agencies in fact all businesses because I was I went um, on Monday to hear the ex-CTO of Photobox talk and Every business I've ever spoken to has had one moment where when you speak to fans, one moment where it could have been a year, two years, five years, where they hit hell, where it was the worst moment. You know, everything fell apart. Everything they thought would happen didn't happen. Everything they hoped it would take them in the right direction, it went badly wrong. And I think once you begin to realize that and you talk to other people who run businesses, which is you just have to do, you realize it's quite normal. It is, this is, this is conformist normal. This is your yeah. business conforming um, to everything that will be out there. The world is unpredictable and the best you can do is surf it and surf it well. I think that's a really good piece of advice and it's something that I continue. People look at me and they go, oh, you're always so brave. I said, yeah, but I'm not scared. Of course I'm scared. I yeah. get shit scared all of the time, but you just got to, the difference in, in keeping going is that bravery, and it seems to have been a, a theme of our, our conversation today to embrace your difference, to do the things that other people are, not, are afraid to do and to sort of keep your business going. I think bravery is a, is a big part of it, uh, yeah. integral part to it, actually. So thank you so much for that. Well, I've got one more question, and because we, you don't like labels, you may not want to answer this question, but... It's, it's interesting for me to ask this anyway, is based on the fact that we've talked about 
me thinking that nonconformists are the square pegs and round hole kind of people and their different personalities. Based on that, what do you think the future is for nonconformist people that are square pegs and round holes? So my view of those people is that they're all sorts of shaped pegs right now. Yep. <laughs> True. The world will always be that oyster if they remember two things, bravery and courage, which you talked about, but also curiosity. Don't stop asking yourself why and what if. Don't stop saying, if I change this, this would happen. I think the wonderful thing about, nobody ever talks about the good things about social media, but there is a wonderful part to social media. And that is not normalizing things. The wonderful part about social media is the coalescence of those of us who don't quite fit, maybe, or those of us with ideas or those of us who want to change things, being able to gather together. If it wasn't for those people putting pressure endlessly through social about plastics, Sky wouldn't have made the programs. They wouldn't have got everybody on board. And now suddenly we are all plastics thinking. But if you look at the seeds of that conversation, they started online. And I feel that there is so much optimism and hope for the future that with all the bad that gets publicized by the media, that's fine. But there is an awful lot of good going on on social, a lot of good. Which is a great thing. I think I'm excited about the future. I'm excited about the fact that the, as you said, many shaped pegs and different holes are, I think, rising to the top. And and I'm really excited about that. Absolutely fantastic conversation today, Katie. As per usual, you've stepped up, um, inspired me as you usually do. And I really appreciate the time that you've spent with us today. And I, I know for a fact that you'll be uh, inspiring others with what you've said today and also with your vulnerability and and honesty about everything today I think it's been absolutely wonderful thank you so much and I look forward to catching up with you in the future fantastic thank you very much Lena